John 10, 22, you can follow along. These are the words of God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them, excuse me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we come now to your Holy Scriptures to, to learn from your Holy Spirit. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts set aflame so that we too may testify by our work to your glorious Son's kingdom. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. John Chrysostom, the famous Archbishop of Constantinople, he made it a point to emphasize the virtues of gentleness and meekness in his homily on this passage, this exact passage. Um, Chrysostom emphasized meekness and gentleness, and the reason for emphasizing such things is rather self-evident. Despite the constant reproach from the religious leaders, despite their ongoing smirching of Jesus, he he was able to gently and meekly deal with them in a most admirable way. Of course, we should mimic that type of thing. The leaders had called him a demon. They had also called him a Samaritan. They have already tried to stone him and to put him to death. Most men would have either violently retaliated or walked away shamefully defeated. Yet, Jesus does neither of those. Jesus is not exactly like most men in Adam, for he is the perfect second Adam. Yet, Jesus does fight. Jesus does fight. He is not a coward. Gentleness and cowardice are not synonyms. Meekness and pacifism aren't synonyms either. Jesus does not retreat nor shy away from doing battle with evil. But Jesus does fight, and he fights like Adam should have fought in the Garden of Eden. As the Son of God, Jesus welcomes a good tussle with the religious leaders. We've seen this happen several times. 
never shying away from the opportunity to address their insolence and their deceit. And yet here in our passage, we have the very same thing happening again. This time, John tells us, if you look at your Bible there in verse 22 and 23, he says that it's a different time. This incident is at a different time than the previous one um, emphasized, uh, the previous passage, I should say. Now, as I've said this before, I've emphasized this before, and I'm going to go ahead and just emphasize it again. Every time you read your Bible, every time you read your Bible, especially narratives, narratives like this, and you see details that are given about the setting of the story, pay close attention. John tells us that this passage takes place at the time of the eight-day feast of dedication, what we call Hanukkah. Um, or the Festival of Lights, it's sometimes called. And this took place at Jerusalem, the text says, and it happened in the winter, which would have been um, the equivalent of our month of December. So Jesus was walking in the temple on the eastern side. He was underneath the portico of Solomon, which would have been a covered area. Presumably he was there. Maybe there was inclement weather. We don't know exactly, but it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that. So the interaction from the the first part of the chapter, if you remember, happened mid-autumn, and now we are a couple of months later. So from verse 21 to 22, you're looking at a couple of months difference of the timing. Um, In the last passage, it was the, the famous Good Shepherd dialogue, which we covered last week. So this isn't a small detail, and I want to explain it to you, and especially to you kids who are listening, because I want you to know um, you've probably heard of Hanukkah before. You may have heard of this, this particular Jewish holiday. So around 167 B.C., okay, this is 160 years before the birth of Christ, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, say that fast ten times, right? Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. You weren't allowed to do certain things in the temple. He knew it, everyone knew it, and he decided to go ahead and move forward with it. Um, sacrificing a pig on the altar would be an example of desecrating the temple. You weren't to do such a thing. That's not an animal of sacrifice. So Antiochus Epiphanes um, desecrated the temple. He was the man in charge after the death of, some of you know this name, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the man in charge of the Grecian Empire. He um, was a young man, died early in his early, early 30s, And he had conquered much of the known world, and he was a force to be reckoned with. Well, he dies, and the empire sort of falls apart, and you have the Ptolemies and the Seleucid empires, and basically Antiochus Epiphanes takes over of of one of those empires. At any rate, um, Judas Maccabeus, you may have heard his name, Uh, his nickname was The Hammer, which is the best nickname ever, The Hammer. Uh, Judas Maccabeus was the Jewish hero of the day who had led basically this successful resistance movement against Antiochus Epiphanes IV and and some of uh, his his men. That happened around 165-164 BC. When that happened, the temple was purified, it was cleansed, it was rededicated, it was recommemorated um, thanks to basically the hammer's work. And that event is what we know Hanukkah to come from. Hanukkah is not an event that we get from Moses. It's not a a festival that's prescribed um, in the law of Moses. If you have a Bible at home uh, with the Apocrypha in it, you can read 
in First and Second Maccabees, you can read sort of the, some of those stories and you'll be able to read about this event. But that is the Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication here in our text is the Hanukkah celebration. Now, why is it important to know that? Why does John tell us that? Well, you know, he's always telling us stuff for a reason. He wants us to pay attention to the text. Whenever Jewish people would gather to celebrate Hanukkah, they would gather to celebrate the Lord God and liberation from God's enemies. This was a celebration of liberation, much like the Passover celebration. This was a celebration of the temple. This was, um, that was a central aspect of the Jewish socio-religion. Um, but it was also a time when people would get together to celebrate Hanukkah. It was also a time to talk about kings and kingdoms. There was a problem with Judas the Hammer. Judas Maccabeus was not a descendant of David. So again, though he did a marvelous thing for them, the reality is Israel needed a qualified Messiah king. They, he didn't fit the bill. He couldn't take, he, as heroic as his work was, he couldn't be the Messiah because, well, you have to be David's son to be the Messiah. And, and everyone knew that this person, this Messiah, would be a shepherd king, and this shepherd king would depose all the false shepherds. Now, that's common Old Testament language. We talked about that last week, if you remember. And here is Jesus. It's the time of Hanukkah when all this discussion is happening and there's magic in the air, if you will. All this discourse, the height of religious discourse regarding the temple and the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus talking about what? Being the shepherd of Israel again. He'd already talked about this two months later or before. And here we are again. He's reappropriating the same message that he is the good shepherd. He's come for his sheep. The shepherd king had come. He has already laid claim to this title. He's already said, I am the good shepherd. That is a claim on him. He's, he's taking that title and putting it on himself. So Jesus takes on the yoke of being Israel's king. And that's, of course, why he came. And what happens, though, when you take that yoke upon yourself? What do people start to think? Well, for starters, you create enemies immediately. You have intransigent leaders trying to discredit you full till at every stretch. When you claim this type of thing, you create enemies. However, as we talked about last week, there are, they are false shepherds. They are the false shepherds that Jesus has come to judge and Jesus has come to replace. The stubborn insistence of Jesus drives the leaders insane. And I mean stubborn in the positive context. The same is true today, if you think about it. This, the insistence, this intractable insistence of, of being exclusive, we'll call it this insistence of exclusivity, drives the world insane. Why is it that everyone is allowed to have their religion except for the Christians? Why? There's a reason for that. We aren't hopping on the, well, some are, but we're not hopping on the train to Pluralityville where we think Jesus is one great God among the rest of them. There's an intentional claim of exclusivity. We don't, we don't think that there are, are legitimate gods that are worthy of contending with Jesus. All right? So, again, God's at war. We'll come back to that in a minute. There's a reason I chose that. So here we have Jesus picking yet another volatile yet perfect time to teach the people and gather his sheep. 
See, the religious leaders gather around him, verse 24, you can follow along as we'll kind of just quickly move through this, and their next tactic is just as disingenuous as the previous tactics. Ever since this young prophet stepped on the scene, the leaders have been basically plotting to put an end to him, but they need to build a case. The, the two healings on the Sabbath didn't work, nor did the situation with the woman caught in adultery. They needed something more concrete. They, what do they come up with? Well, they seek to entrap Jesus by heading straight for the most volatile topic there is. The topic on everyone's mind, the topic that they're discussing as they're standing in the temple, waiting for the Messiah, the shepherd king. They're waiting for him because it's Hanukkah time. That's what we do. What does Jesus decide? What do they decide to do? Well, he says right here in the text, verse 24, tell us, are you the Messiah? And then they say, speak plainly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Why, why speak plainly? Well, because Jesus is intentionally speaking in parabolic terms so that the Bible says so they don't understand. How intolerant of Jesus to not give everyone equal opportunity to hear. No, it's God's sovereignty at stake here. So tell us plainly. Now, this is a genius move on their part. It's an absolutely brilliant move on their part. If they can get Jesus to say something incriminating, Jesus will have then discredit himself, and then they can add up you know, the charges. They can drop it in the file for a later deposition. So in order to trump up these charges against Jesus, they need more material to work with. They need it to stick in the court of law, right? So they choose the hot topic of the day, the hot topic du jour, Messiah. Let's talk. Are you the Messiah? Speak plainly. Now, John's already told us Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. So he won't give them exactly what they want. He doesn't play the game on their terms we play on Jesus' terms. That's how that works. He has already told them. Here's the thing. He's, told, he's already told them, and yet they do not believe. He says in verse 25 that his works give sufficient testimony, the work he does in the, his Father's names. Now, these are classical evidentialists, okay? That's why when you go to George Mason, by the way, we're going this week, hopefully Thursday afternoon, we'll see. I've got to work out some details with Ron. But we don't go there and start saying, I can prove to you Noah's Ark. They don't care. That's not the starting point. These are evidentialists, these people. And they don't believe because they're not of his sheep. Verse 26, true sheep elected by the Father and called by the Spirit in the name of the Son actually hear his voice. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who, somebody asked him about um, the elect, like the doctrine of election and the elect people of God, and why don't you just preach to them? And he said, well, I mean, if they had a stripe on their back, I think he said, mentioned like a yellow stripe on their neck or something, then I could go find them and then I could preach to them. But he says, you know, in this type of situation, I don't, we don't have that, so we're just going to preach to everybody. And that's the way, that's true Calvinism. That's the way we do this. We preach to everyone. And we don't worry so much about who's elect and who's not. We preach, we proclaim, and God's sheep will hear the voice. They will hear. And it's not because of anything you or I did. They're going to hear it if they're sheep. And that's the doctrine of election. So he knows them, and as a result, verse 27, they follow him. They follow him. See, Jesus gives eternal life. That's the only thing. God can only do that. So there's another claim of exclusivity. 
and thus they can never perish. And not only will they never perish, Jesus says in verse 28 that he holds them in his hands so tightly that no one can snatch them from him. Jesus doesn't lose Christians. Genuine, converted, justified by faith alone Christians. Jesus loses none of them. He doesn't lose them. But I want look at verse 29 though because this should tip you off. Notice something. Jesus is given these sheep by the Father. Now that's the doctrine of predestination. That's election. That's how the Trinity works in our redemption. But he says he's given the sheep from the Father and the Father is greater than all. And notice that not only are we secure in Christ's hands, we are secure in the Father's hands too. This is perseverance of the saints. Those who are saints persevere. That's the nature of our sanctification. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why would he first say in verse 28 that they won't, come, they won't be able to be snatched out of my hand? And then in verse 29, at the end of that, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That seems confusing. Well, the answer is in the next verse, in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, I want to explain this real quick, and then we'll come back to it. But the Greek word for one here is not in the masculine form. And if it were in the masculine form, it would mean that I and the Father are the same person. It's actually in, in Greek, you have the neuter, feminine, masculine. It's in the neuter form, which actually Jesus is basically saying he and the Father are, are um, the same essence. Um, if, we, if, if Jesus had said that he and the Father are the same person, then we would have a problem. Because now we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the old heresy, Sibelius, he was before um, Arian, or Arius rather, the, the Arius. He, basically, Sibelianism is when you see God as one person, and, and then he's only like some days he's Father, some days he's the Son. So God sort of manifests himself. Jesus doesn't say that. This is a classic text for us defending Trinitarian theology. He and the Father are the same essence. Again, we'll come back to this. So having stated this ontological relationship to God the Father, the Jewish leaders are ready to stone him. When you walk into town and say that you and the Father are of one essence, wow, that's, you have just lit the fuse. <laughs> Things are going to go bad. So that's why they rush to stone him in verse 31. And Jesus asked a question, though, in verse 32. He says, basically, I'm answering your questions. I have done all these good works from the Father. Which of these works are you now leveraging against me in order to have a case to stone me? And they clarify their answer in verse 33. Well, it's not for good work, but for blasphemy. We're, we're going to stone you for blasphemy because Jesus has made himself out to be God. Now, blasphemy of such a degree was a capital crime and definitely, most, definitely punishable by death. False prophets arose in Israel all the time, and there were repercussions for that. But Jesus, he changes the discussion, and I think this is the heart of the passage. Look at verse 34. In verse 34, and, and Cody read it earlier, Jesus appeals to Psalm 82, verse 6, and... You ever, you ever read the Bible and scratch your head? <laughs> this is one of those head scratchers. Look what Jesus says here. 
In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? That's from Psalm 82, verse 6. And in Psalm 82, basically God tells the judges and leaders of Israel that they are Elohim in Hebrew. They are gods. And all of them are, quote, sons of the Most High. So what in the world is Jesus getting at? Because are we all little gods? <laughs> no. The answer is no. You, didn't, you, you hesitated. Don't ever hesitate to that question. The answer is no. The one doing, here's the situation. The one doing the works of God is being accused of making himself God by ones who are called gods in Scripture, ones who really do think they are gods, when in fact they are false shepherds ready to be expunged and eliminated. So here's what we have going on here. They said you're making yourself God. Jesus isn't making himself God. He already is. Okay, we can agree with that. He's not making himself God. He already is. God binds himself to man, I'm just speaking generally, in covenant, and he proves his loyalty to man by sending Jesus to take on human flesh and thus accepting the title Son of God. So here's the logic. If it's true that those in the covenant with God were called gods by virtue of their relationship, their covenant relationship and standing, how much more fitting is it for Jesus himself, sent by the Father, to be called the Son of God? That's his argument. So what we have here is Jesus putting on a Bible study. And he's putting on a Bible study with the religious leaders who should know better, and they don't know better. He has impeccable exegetical skills to state his case, but as is to be expected, their response proved that what we have here is Jesus the God-man at war with false gods. That's why I chose the title, Gods at War. We have Jesus the God-man at war with men who are not actually gods in the covenantal sense in, in terms of you know, being in covenant with God is this union with him. They are not even that. They have gone so far from this that they are now blast. They're the ones blaspheming. See the issue? They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, but they're the ones blaspheming. So Jesus puts on a Bible study and he deals with it. Now, oftentimes we think of, oftentimes we think of false gods as being false gods that are out there. But in this case, we have false gods in here. That is, in the covenant. We have false teachers in the covenant. And the religious leaders, they were to be sons of God. They were, they were gods in the sense that they were to be pure reflections of God himself. But they had become defunct. Instead of obeying the scriptures and following Jesus, their hearts were hardened and they fought against him. And all of this was part of God's sovereign plan, of course, because, as Jesus says, they are not his sheep. They are not elect. They don't believe. They won't believe because they do not possess the sovereign grace of God. Now, I want to go back to verse 30 there. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, certain theological concepts in the house of God hold up and hold together certain things. So, you have some concepts that are like coat racks where we can put our stuff. Certain theological concepts and doctrines are like pillows where you can rest your weary head. Other doctrines are like studs in the wall, 
siding on the outside of the house. Some doctrines are like paint on the wall. <laughs> Some, however, are the thick beams that hold everything in place. Okay? Jesus being one with the Father is one of those beams which holds the whole house together. So it's important to note the, and understand the identity of Jesus in relationship to the Godhead, what we call the Trinity. So let's talk about that. Basic Christian theology teaches that there is one God in three persons. So we should speak like this, three in one, one in three. That's how we talk. And each person has a unique... Um, there are, uh, there's a sense in which um, each person, we call them a person, call him a person, Father God, uh, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit's God, each of them are persons. But there's also a sense when we can speak of God as one person. Um, so sometimes we talk about God in a singular sense, sometimes we talk about the tr each person of the Trinity in terms of, of his particular role. So we can speak of God sort of in a general sense, and, and, and that's where you have this movement of people saying, well, God and Allah are the same. Well, what we mean by God is the one God, the one true God. And God is simply three letters in the English language, right? G-O-D, that's, that's God, and we capitalize God because we're specifically talking about the God we worship. But then you have the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And now all, and here's why this matters. All of our truth stems from this fact. All truth stems from this fact. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a particular view of Jesus that is incorrect, which means they don't have the right God, which means they don't have salvation. So there are churches, I, I don't know if you know this, there's a church recently that started in our little town here. There is a church in our town that believes in Sibelianism, which is what you probably have heard as modalism. One God, he is Father on Mondays, Son on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, he's Holy Spirit Thursdays through Sunday. That is a heresy. That is false doctrine. It's a damnable heresy. You cannot believe that God is one person and that some days he puts his father hat on, some days he puts his son hat on, and on the weekends he gets really crazy, puts the Holy Spirit hat on. That is heresy. And you don't have salvation if you don't have the triune God correct. It's a non-negotiable doctrine. You can't get this wrong. You just can't. See, a Christ who is not equal in essence, with the Father, is not a Christ who can save you. Um, I've had Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, say, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus. And my first question is, which one? <laughs> which one are we talking about? A Christ who is not co-equal with the Father and the Son, in essence, divine all the way through, is not a Christ who can save it's a false God, and if you get this wrong, you don't have a house, at least not a house that's going to stand up for very long. So as Christians, let me explain what I mean of this being foundational for the house. As Christians, we believe in something called analogical reasoning, which is basically this. We can only know and reason and deduce and come to conclusions from God as his creatures. That's the only basis. All of you experience things, right? You experience 
uh, a traffic jam and then it makes you angry. That's like you know that you're in a traffic jam. You're angry. But the fact that you exist stems from God. And the fact that you know that you exist stems from God. So analogical reasoning just means that we think God's thoughts after him. No one has ever had a thought that escaped the mind of God. No one. So we think God's thoughts after him by virtue of the fact that he's revealed himself. And listen, if we don't have the Trinity straight, that means that we can't actually know things, and thus we're off into heresy land where everything's made up and you can do whatever you want. But I want you to see the connection of why this type of doctrinal thing matters to the text and, and, and what it means for us. Whenever we come to the Bible, we have to keep something in mind. Don't start your exegesis, your pulling of information out of the Bible, by asking yourself how you are like Jesus. All right? You don't go to the Gospels and you're sitting along reading, having, you're drinking from your crossing crown radio mug, or not, because you don't have one. And you look at the text like this, and you think, wow, Jesus is bold. I'm going to be like Jesus. I, you know, I am like Jesus in that. I'm bold. Don't start there, okay? Don't, don't start there. Don't, up it, oh, don't open the, up the Bible and think, or worse, boy, Jesus is like me. He's like me. I act like that. He's doing what I do. No, he invented it. You're, you're just a copycat. So start by assuming that you start by assuming how much like the bad guys you are. <laughs> start with that. So ask how unlike Jesus you are first when you're reading the Bible. And there's a reason for this. The basic proclivity and propensity of unredeemed men is to be man-centered. That's the basic default. Unredeemed man is always man-centered. So man-centeredness is creation of a false god, right? Hence why it's a, the issue with the leaders here and why we can speak of gods at war. But that's the de facto position of rebellious men in Adam. Men in Adam are self-contained, autonomous um, deities. That's what we think. We like to think we're God. We like to be sovereign. We like to know things. Um, if you're struggling with anxiety that's a place where I would press on you. You're anxious about things. Why are you anxious about things? Because you think you're sovereign and you think you control other people and, and you can't, so that bothers you. Now, not all anxiety is like that, but some of it is. So men in Adam think themselves to be self-contained, self-contained in the sense of, you know, I'm me and I'm the sovereign, I'm authoritative, and you have autonomous deification. You're a god. Now, the religious leaders were guilty of the same thing. See, for them, here's the, here's the connection. Jesus is invited, to, he's invited to accept a place in their particular strain of theology. That's, that's what they're doing. Jesus is invited to come on in, join my particular theology. But there's no way that Jesus can be accommodated by a man-centered theology. When men try and accommodate God on their terms, with their own self-constructed theological framework, God is reduced. And what happens when God is reduced? Man ascends to the throne. However, listen, in Christ, we have the very exact opposite thing take place. The height of Christian theology is the descent of the Son of Man. 
the height of our theology. I, I picked those three songs on purpose because Holy, Holy, Holy connects with the doctrine of the Trinity. We, we bless the Trinity. And then, of course, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Like Jordan said, it's normally a Christmas song, but it's really here we are at the Hanukkah scene. There's anticipation. They're waiting for this truth, and Jesus drops the truth on them. But the height of our theology, the apex of it, the whole, the crescendo of our theology, the thing that really holds together this house of faith is the fact that Jesus descended. The Son of God descended. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. Now talk about accommodation. Would it have been just for God to just destroy the planet in a snap of a finger? Yeah, it would be justice. But he's accommodating in the sense that he's love. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. See, instead of inviting Jesus to take on our theological framework and our presuppositions, and thus we perpetuate this war against him as God's at war, we are commanded then to lay down our weapons and come to Christ. Okay? We are commanded to stop resisting him. I think it was a Stephen talking in the book of Acts. <laughs> you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stiff-necked people. Don't be stiff-necked. Instead of doing that, we are commanded to lay down our weapons and come to him, to stop resisting, to listen to the voice of the shepherd. Instead of the age-old problem of man trying to ascend to deity, God has descended to man and he's brought us into his fold, into the fold. And now that means that we are no longer at war with God because God has come. And that's the beauty of the gospel message that we love, that we proclaim. You see, as light of the world and as the shepherd king, Jesus didn't come to simply expose the darkness. He came to completely chase it away, far as the curse is found. He didn't just come and say, look, guys, you have a problem. He came to deal with the problem. And the church is not, <laughs> the church is not here to simply put our collective finger on a societal evil and say, hey, we have a problem. No, we're here to do something about it. And the way forward is for us to assert with unwavering persistence the center of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the shepherd king. And so we're not invited to have Jesus come and we accommodate him. That's not how this works. We are not inviting people to accommodate Jesus, to merely add him to the mix of their already self-deified life. We are not asking people to keep doing things their way and once in a while let Jesus in. None of you should think in that term, in those terms. No, we are proclaiming that man is at war with God, man is in rebellion against God, and Jesus Christ has come as the shepherd king to gather his sheep. And the only way you get out of that rebellion is by surrendering to him. Lay down your arms, lay down the weapons, stop resisting, and come to him, rest in him, believe on him, see him, listen to him, follow to him each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with grateful hearts because your Son has been established on Zion, your holy hill. You have done marvelous works through Jesus, and we glorify you because of it. We love you, Lord Jesus, and bow before you with humbled hearts and softened wills. We want to do your will, and so we ask and pray that your Spirit would empower us for the task at hand. At hand. Father, I pray for mothers that they would be diligent and not discouraged. For fathers that they would be hardworking and not slothful. I pray that you would grow us as a community. That we would truly see ourselves um, 
as, as a part of this war. That, that in our humble propositions and our humble engagement with the world, God, that we would be a voice that would beckon those who are yours to believe on you. So we ask for your strength, Spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.